Now we're listening to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, uh, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And I'm your host today, Luke Fowler, here with my co-hosts, Jackie Kettler and Jim Schneider, my colleagues from the School of Public Service at Boise State. And uh, as usual, we have a jam-packed, exciting show full of tons of public affairs to talk about, right, guys? Luke's Always. our hype man today. Yes, the excitement in this room is just, like, palatable. <laughs> like, it's just, it's, it's so, we're so amped up to talk about this stuff today. Uh, so we're going to start with... Uh, uh, the Idaho State Legislature. Some interesting stuff happening this week, correct? Right. Well, they may be starting to wrap up. They may be done today. So that may make some people happy to hear. I mean, I, I've been following Betsy Russell's blog, uh, I on Idaho. Yeah, is that what it's called? I on Boise. I on Boise now. Okay. Uh, and I feel like there's just every day there are several entries on that, several headlines. So much has been going on. It feels like a wild ride at the legislature this session. And one with a lot of tension here lately between especially the House and the Senate and some disagreements on different things, including whether or not the House, like expanding the House offices. And now they're debating about administrative rulemaking processes. And it's just it's been quite the session. And we have a veto delivered by the governor. We did. Um, I guess that was, was that last week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, <laughs> at this point of the semester, I'm a bit. Hold on. Jackie's head is still spinning. Well, uh, yeah. So the legislature had passed a bill in a trailer bill to restrict or to make the process of getting an initiative on the ballot more restrictive, make it more difficult. And uh, Governor Little last week vetoed um, that bill. And so and, and the there had been a lot of public opinion kind of against the bill, at least it seemed to be. The so. majority of public comment his yep. office received was against it. Vast yeah. majority, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was interesting, though, to read Little's veto statement and that bringing up some of the not wanting this to kind of go through the court system. And there is some concern that what the restrictions that are already present could be found unconstitutional if they would actually be challenged. Okay, so there was the sort of bill passed to make it much harder to get initiatives on the ballot and then governor little vetoes that and then so how does the legislature respond so on monday they introduced four separate bills um, kind of breaking apart the different restrictions and it looks like and so one of them has moved forward the others have stayed in committee but the one is about um, requiring fiscal implications or so like initiatives would have to specify what the cost would be and where that money would come from in addition to delaying the um, when effective date for when an initiative would take effect. Uh, that's actually, I think, common in a couple of other states as well. Uh, I know in uh, Mississippi, there's been a, an effort uh, for several years, and I think it's kind of died at this point, to do citizen initiatives to ban casino gambling. Um, but nobody, basically the state kept keeps rejecting the financial implications part of this because nobody really can put up together an economic analysis of how big the casino industry is and what it would actually do to the state's economy. And all this, Jackie, correct me if I'm wrong, but all this goes back to that Medicaid expansion bill, that ballot that was initiative that was put on the ballot and approved by voters. And I think that probably freaked the legislature out, it sounds like. And so they are wanting to put some restrictions on that. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely like the thought that some of this is coming is kind of trying to deal with that. Additionally, maybe some concern about other possible topics that could be covered. But I do think that this one portion about the fiscal implications and effective date um, is a little bit more okay, like more people are okay with this. And so 
it may be successful, whereas if it was attached to those other elements like shortening the window span, time span for gathering signatures and requiring signatures in more counties um, and a higher percentage, those are more controversial. But did the four uh, new bills pass then? Or? So the, the, the three of them are in committee still. It looks like the one about the fiscal implications has continued to move forward, though I haven't seen where at last it, it was in the process. Mm-hmm. And um, just going back to Medicaid, it looks like we also had some movement on that with the legislature approving what's called the sideboards bill. Yeah. Yeah. The work requirement has some work requirements. So so what does that mean to have work requirements on the on the uh, Medicaid bill? Yeah, good question. So that in order to qualify for the Medicaid expansion, you have to demonstrate that you're working so many hours the week or seeking work. Hours, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or in job training programs or education or things. And one argument that was brought up went to why to pass the initiative should pass was that people were working and couldn't afford health care. And so I you know, from the so from the legislator's perspective, well, if this is true then then they should already meet those requirements. Yeah, and I, I think there's um, quite a bit of distaste for for that um, outcome as well, sort of a lot of folks feeling as if they had made their voice heard through the initiative process and then had their um, desires or what they had initially approved with that ballot initiative sort of uh, pulled back by the legislature. Well, it also costs more money <laughs> once you introduce, because then you need a, a bureaucratic system to actually check and enforce that people are working, keep track of that data. Um, there was some thought that Governor Little might veto uh, the work requirements. He did sign it, though the signing um, statement was not especially positive and recognized that there are some concerns with us, including recent decisions in other parts of the country that these are unconstitutional. And the former director of health and welfare, Dick Armstrong, came out with a a pretty strongly worded editorial about why this is really going to be a mess, sort of, uh, well, poorly funded to help in terms of, you know, bodies at health and welfare who can make sure that these things are enforced, you know, and that's separate from this larger question about the sort of legality of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those type of... um those type of structures or, or limitations on these programs uh, is a huge burden. And I want to say it was out of Florida where they put in uh, drug testing requirements for welfare. And basically the state came back after a couple of years of doing that and figured out it cost them more money to implement the drug testing than they were losing or estimated that they were losing in fraud. So it's just kind of like, hey, if we take this away, it'll be a net gain for the state financially. And so there's kind of a balance there. But it's not easy to implement work requirements because you have to go through and verify this stuff. Um, and, and so it's, it's just a difficult burden to to place on these agencies. So why do it then, Luke? Like, what's the ideological impetus here? It's accountability, right? I mean, it's the it's the idea that we would rather um, spend ten dollars to make sure that we weren't being defrauded of a dollar than just spend the dollar and let it go, right? Um, and so I, I think that's one of the things that scares a lot of conservatives about social programs is just the the fear that somebody's getting or taking advantage of a program that they don't really deserve. They're getting something that they haven't earned, um, and we're willing to put all these stipulations in there that might cost us more or be less efficient just to ensure that nobody's getting something that they didn't earn. I do think it's a little funny that it's expanding government regulation in the effort to actually in- ensure that everyone, per- you know, 
receiving benefits as a good actor. Yeah, there's definitely some problems with the internal consistency of some of these arguments um, and understanding holistically what some of this means. Um, and I think that's been a struggle, not just constitutionally, but trying to make sense of combining these things and trying to make social policy palatable to conservatives uh, in this way. Um, but it's definitely been a, a, a difficult path uh, to, to blaze. I mean, I think we probably see some of those inconsistencies on the left, too, right? I mean, on the one hand, I think the left wants to say that a lot of these folks are working and can't afford health care or not getting benefits. And on the other hand, say that it sure lacks a lot of compassion to require people who might be dealing with pretty significant health challenges and other social challenges to meet these work requirements. So uh, it would be interesting to see how these narratives sort of end up playing out. Yeah. And I mean, um, I think as we as we know, when we make policy, you kind of make it for the average person or you make a lot of assumptions. And honestly, like any policy that we make and we try to apply, apply generally to a huge group of people, there are going to be people that fall through the cracks. Um, and so the question is, how do we respond to that? And how do we kind of adapt to make sure that, you know, one, people aren't taking advantage of the system, but also people in need are getting the things that they, they need to survive. So um, it's definitely a, a difficult balance to, to strike there. Um, but unfortunately, we have to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a minute. What's up? I'm Ozomatic, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell Boise. Tune in and turn it up. Welcome back to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell Boise. And so uh, just got done talking about what the Idaho State Legislature is doing this session, and hopefully they're about to wrap up. Uh, but we're going to take a, a little bit of a turn there. We're going to talk about uh, other state-level policies about marijuana, pot, weed. <laughs> Which is relevant, and that one th- argument I've heard is that Legislators were concerned that a marijuana initiative is, is close close to being on the ballot in, in Idaho. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's definitely interesting. And one of the connections we made uh, on, was it last week or the week before when we were talking about the ballot initiative referendum or the, the, the bill was that legalized marijuana may be making its way to Idaho. Um, But a new study apparently tells us some interesting things about what that might mean. Correct, Jen? Yeah, there was a great piece in the conversation this week called Does Legalizing Marijuana Help or Harm Americans? Uh, Researchers at uh, Washington University in St. Louis sort of, uh, I thought, did a a really nice job of um, catching us up sort of on the current state of research. Now that we have several states that have legalized marijuana, we have some a few years of data to analyze for states like Colorado in particular, also California uh, or Oregon, Washington. Um, and so they address some questions like, uh, is legalizing marijuana good for the state coffers? And one of the things they found was that, yes, in fact, states, although they may some states may have sort of overshot in terms of what they were expecting to see with, from taxing um uh, legalized marijuana, for the most part, has been really positive, sort of for the the ledger. And then the other piece that I thought was really interesting was, is legalized marijuana hurting youth? Because I, I'm older than you two, but when I was growing up, pot was always talked about as sort of a gateway drug. Like, it was for, for when for I was you growing two. up as well, yeah. yeah. The yeah, D.A.R.E. program. Yeah, yeah. Dare. yeah, I'm pretty sure they used the same like videos from when you were in high school for when me and Jackie were in high school. They might be still using it today, for all I know. Like if you smoke pot, that you're just very likely then to be doing 
meth or heroin short, shortly thereafter. Um, but uh, what these researchers are saying is we don't we don't really know yet. We don't have a ton of data, but preliminary data suggests that youth marijuana use is actually decreasing in states where it's legalized. And their hypothesis is that it's because it's no longer dangerous or cool. <laughs> That's kind of funny. So. I was just talking to my students today about how quickly public opinion has changed on marijuana, mm-hmm. whereas a majority of Americans now support it, but especially youth support legalization. But I, I do think like we were there was so much fear in discussion, like you're going to ruin your life. And so I think kind of our understanding of marijuana is changing over time. Yeah. So so what does that mean for the sort of moral politics of marijuana in a state like Idaho? Like what is the what do we understand as being the major arguments against legalization? marijuana is that there's religious arguments I suppose um, from folks but what else well I mean I think the gateway drug hypothesis is still out there that I think that's largely been dispelled by a lot of research um, but yeah I think the moral aspect of this is really something that lingers on the kind of the cultural components of all this is one of those things uh, also thought you know one of the interesting things this is doing with the legalization of, of marijuana and I know one of our colleagues is doing some research on it is how to deal with HR policies concerning drug use at Human work. resources yeah because you can't I mean, essentially, why you can test to figure out if somebody's drunk at their job, you can't do that to figure out if they're high. Um, and so to, to try to test this and figure out, you know, exactly how we develop policy in workplaces um, to deal with it. So, I mean, I, I think maybe one of those arguments is basically like, we don't know how to deal with it. If we did legalize pot, like, what would we actually do with it? Like, what would happen? Also, it is still illegal federally. <laughs> so there is an argument to be made that, you know, you are in violation of federal law when you legalize this. And so, Jackie, when you said that you think attitudes are really changing about it, I mean, I always think about like my parents' generation and and folks from that generation who are against mm-hmm. um, pot usage or legalizing marijuana. I think in their mind they have sort of like a reefer madness, yep, oh for sure, vision <laughs> in their head that like it's going to turn everybody into sort of like lazy, giggly hippies or something like that. But then I also know a bunch of folks from my parents' generation who smoke pot frequently themselves now medically and recreationally and um, sort of don't see it as the bugaboo right yeah there's definitely generational differences here where younger the younger generations tend to be much more favorable but you're right there are especially for um, cancer patients and things like this people have found medical benefits of marijuana that and in thinking about the opioid crisis and like other pain treatments like I think some people are starting to more seriously consider um, marijuana as maybe a good option. Yeah, I think when you compare it with, um, I mean, alcohol use, for example, which has can take a huge social toll, uh, depending on how it's used. And then certainly in comparison with opioids, it seems like much, much lesser evil. I'm not encouraging any of our listeners <laughs> to smoke pot today or tomorrow, but it just seems like there are some reasonable arguments in favor of it. Sure, but it, you know, it is a substance, right? Yeah. And so Luke brought up some great concerns or questions that we can have, especially when we can't test well, you know, like our testing, you can't, how do we know if someone's driving while high when the test would tell you if they had been high for the past like several weeks or whatever, right? 
There has to be huge administrative costs just with regulating those businesses too, yeah? Yeah, I mean, certainly that's something that Colorado and some other states are going through. Um, I would argue to a certain extent, one of the reasons that youth marijuana use has probably gone down in those states uh, is it was probably easier for them to buy pot before it became legal because they don't have to go into stores and show IDs (laughs) and do all this stuff. I mean, uh, God, maybe I shouldn't say this on the air, but I'll (laughs) say like in high school, like it was really hard to buy like alcohol because before you were 21, you had to find somebody 21 go to the store and figure all the stuff but you know buying pot you just call somebody and you meet them like that was really easy for the most part so i think like taking the stuff in stores has actually like created an institutional barrier to its use to a certain extent that works in our favor yeah it's really normalized it it's sort of taken the seediness out of it i yeah. think yeah well exactly. that's what i think it's becoming so much more normal that people are more open to the legalization of it in addition to those fiscal benefits and i think some people were like well i'd never engage in it but it may help fund schools. So sure, I'm okay with it. I will say that I was surprised. I used to live in Colorado and had friends who uh, smoked pot and uh, went to the dispensary with them. And it is like so normal. Um, you go, It's like going to the doctor's office, really. It's like brightly lit fluorescent lights. There are display counters that you go and you say what you want and they give you options and t- make suggestions. <laughs> it's just so very different from when I was in college and it felt much more illicit and unregulated. You had no idea what you were getting. But part of me wonders if folks who are really against pot if they're against it because they just don't have that sense of it, right? They haven't had the experience of what it might look like regulated and it sort of takes the mystique out of it, right? I wonder if that would help us be more rational actors. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you're, you're right there because I, I'm guessing that most people outside of states like Colorado, Oregon, or Washington, I mean, maybe their experience if they've ever bought pot or know anybody is probably buying it from a criminal and like literally, I mean, legitimately like a shady figure probably hiding in a street corner like, you know, exactly what you think or, or see on TV. So, I mean, I, I wonder if going in these stores and like, oh, really? this doesn't feel as dirty or nasty. Like, maybe it is all right. And I do want to note, while we don't have any sort of legalization here in Idaho, a majority of Americans now live in a state with some sort of either medical or, or recreational marijuana. And in fact, there's only three states that don't have any form if you incorporate CBD oil. And Idaho is one of those. Even Wyoming allows CBD oil for those with epilepsy. Um, so it really really is it's just the sea of policy change quickly on this issue yeah it'll be interesting to see where we're at in five years on this issue well speaking of criminals we're going to take a quick break but when we come back we're going to talk about the college admissions (laughs) scandal um and what those white collar criminals are doing there so stay tuned so you were back on the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM Caldwell, Boise. And a great follow-up to our discussion on marijuana is college and admissions, because <laughs> those things are, are, are linked uh, for most people's minds. But uh, instead of talking about it in positive ways, like we were talking about pot, apparently, uh, we're going to talk oh. about the college admissions scandal that has uh, honestly rocked the news stories for the most part i mean there's been a lot of big names and i i mean it's kind of hit close to home to me working in universities i don't know what y'all's opinions are. i don't know once aunt becky got involved i was like what is going on <laughs> yeah i mean aunt Be- felicity huffman like i mean just so many so like, for folks who haven't been paying attention to higher ed scandals what what is the college admission scandal so uh the short story is that uh, a lot of very wealthy people paid this guy that was in california uh essentially to pass on bribes to universities 
universities to different people to get their college their kids in the college. And in some cases, this involved direct cheating on standardized tests. Um, in other cases, uh, it involved falsifying records. Um, one of the most, I guess, like obvious and maybe like most like outlandish thing is that uh he would bribe coaches at some of these schools to to designate these uh applicants as like recruits for like sailing or lacrosse or whatever and then they would not sail or do lacrosse and they sports would that maybe weren't under as much scrutiny as a college football yeah exactly yeah. so i mean basically what's happened is there, there was a couple of dozen kids that got into some of the top schools in this country because their parents bribed the right people with a lot of money like five hundred thousand dollars like th this was not a some small sum of money that was involved and also like at some major ivy league universities as well or at stanford was yeah the, the US, usc usc <laughs> stanford ucla Georgetown. I mean, these are all on, on the list. Um, what is also interesting to a certain extent is who busted this was the U.S. attorney. Um, and so these are everybody that's involved in this has been indicted under federal charges. The guy who's essentially the middleman um, has is a state's witness is testifying against everybody. So um, and some of the charges are money laundering as well, yeah. which so, is serious, pretty serious. Yeah, yeah. So all these people, I mean, uh, stand to go to prison uh, for a very long time. Uh, and then, you know, on the other side, which I also think is interesting is colleges are faced with what to do with these students now <laughs> yeah I, we should say too that there were some sort of hollywood luminaries involved in the scandal including uh felicity huffman who was on desperate housewives and Lori laughlin who was on full house yep. and becky yep yes um okay so what are colleges doing with these students they've they've admitted them they assumed that they were legitimate admissions and now the these sort of allegations uh, come out from the attorney general and so now what so it's kind of interesting um you know in a lot of cases these students might not have known what their parents are doing uh which is an interesting thing in itself right imagine that you get into one of these top ivy league schools and then the registrar the president of the university tells you that oh wait you're suspended from classes because your mom bribed your way in um that is uh, definitely some reporting around Lori loftlin and her daughter have that's been a, a big issue uh so it seems like there's there's a couple of classes of students here. One are the students that are still applicants to these programs, right? That have not actually been admitted yet. In, in every case, every university has said, look, if they are in the admission cycles, we've pulled their applications, they're not getting in. What is a more unique question, though, are the students that got admitted are now taking classes at these universities. Like, what do you do with them? Like, they got admitted under fraudulent terms, um, and so Universities respond in different ways. Uh, I know, and I'm actually impressed with Yale on their end because they've said that anybody that basically falsified any information lied to us and we're kicking them out. They well, don't get anything. Presumably they have like a student code of conduct that, that would be in violation of, that would be in violation of that. I mean, it sounds like some of the bigger name schools are going to pull the students. Um, they've announced that they are. Others are saying it's under study. And then there's some sort of smaller colleges like Wake Forest who are allowing the students to stay. So so it's being handled really differentially depending on the institution. Yeah, and it's, it's very interesting because uh, me and my wife have discussed this a couple of times because uh, it's kind of funny from like an administrator like inside the university. I'm like, no, kick them all out. They lied. They cheated. And then she was like, but what about the students? They didn't know. It wasn't their fault. And so she feels really bad for some of these students. Um, so we've kind of gone back and forth. But, I mean, I'm of the, the stance that they should just all be kicked out, um, that they do not deserve – I mean, their parents might have committed the crimes, but they shouldn't be able to, to benefit from the fact that their parents committed the crimes. Well, I think I can 
feel individually bad for individual human beings who maybe shouldn't be responsible for what their parents did, and at the same time think that a really strong message should be sent to other parents that this is not okay. Right? I think that's probably maybe what you're thinking when you're talking with your wife. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I mean, uh, again, the question is like, what is actually going to be the punishment associated with this? And, and I said earlier, and I, I'll say this on the air, is I don't believe that rich white women uh, that commit nonviolent crimes go to jail in America. Except for Martha Stewart. That, I mean, I just don't believe they're going to go to prison. I don't believe that Aunt Becky is going to be in a jumpsuit uh, behind bars. Um, I think there's going to be deals to be made. So when you're looking at that and like, all right, she's going to pay a fine and maybe be on probation. So what is actually, and I'm guessing it's a fine that she can afford, so what actually will end up being the punishment here? If her daughter is allowed to graduate from USC, essentially it's not. There's not, a, there's not a punishment. She gets everything she wants. So, I mean, I'm very hard of us coming down hard on this because I think it kind of undermines the integrity of the other and entire academic system to see this. Well, we already have admissions problems and scandals, right? And so, especially in schools where there is a lot of demand and they have way more applicants than they can admit. So we already have questions on who gets admitted, thinking about legacies getting a huge step up as opposed to other students who may have better academic records. And so I think this just continues to feed into people's concern about college admissions overall. I think there's been some good op-eds written, too, that suggest, look, we already have a caste system in the United States when it comes to university admissions. And this is just one example of it becoming visible. And these things sort of happen happen all the time. It just happened in this case that the, the, there was this unsavory middleman offering a sort of side door into admissions for folks who are not quite billionaire status i mean and like for some of these cases like i think it was Lori laughlin's daughter that she was like yeah she can't fill out the college application we need help on this and i'm like well i don't i am a little dubious on whether this student should be in college well and i i don't know how closely y'all followed the harvard uh affirmative action admissions trial um and it was really if you follow it closely like there the testimony from the dean of admissions there that has been in his job for like two decades was interesting because it was a unique look inside of that applications process and what it really indicated was there's a lot of fuzzy lines about who they admit and who they don't admit. Um, and a lot of times, and I think I remember reading about like, oh, wait, they would flag certain students that were the kids of certain powerful alumni or very famous people. And then they would pay, pay te- special attention to them in the admissions process. And so, I mean, like that kind of stuff, I mean, I just really just undermines this idea that Harvard's for the elites. It's really not. It, it's it's for the people that have the right connections. And I think that just kind of undermines everything that we do here. Yeah. I mean, I think we can't underestimate the um, influence peddling that happens with universities today. And that has been happening for a long time. I don't think we should be totally cynical about admissions processes. I think there are good people out there who are trying to act in good faith and universities who have missions to serve the broader public. I I believe Boise State is one of those, mm-hmm. um, but it certainly uh, forces us to ask hard questions about whether or not um, our admissions processes are, in fact, based on a meritocracy. I mean, I think that's why this bothers people so mm-hmm. much. This scandal is that we want to believe in the United States that if you work hard enough and you do everything that you're told and you check all of the boxes, that you will have access Um uh, to certain kinds of opportunities. And I think increasingly we're just seeing that that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly with these these universities that we pointed to, right, I mean, they have limited, like they have huge applicant pools that have gotten just more and more competitive every year. And so like Lori Lofton's daughter, 
took the spot of someone else. Like she just didn't get admitted and it wasn't an extra student. She took somebody else's spot, which means that there's probably somebody out there that deserved it um, that now doesn't get to go to USC or doesn't get to go to Yale or Princeton or all these other places. And so like, I think that's really damaging and kind of a sad story. Um, and so um, I'm still waiting for the news uh, reporters or for uh, colleges or whatever to release some of that information so we can get an idea of what some of these students that didn't get into college look like and whether or not, I mean, how big of a tragedy this really is on their end. We have about a minute left, but what do you think is going through these parents' minds? What what makes it worth it well, I, to pay that big amount? I mean, some of it's status, right? Being able to say that your child's at this university. I'm sure some of them also really want the best for their kids, and they know going to these really elite schools puts them on a path for success. You know, and I I agree with what Jackie said, but the one thing I, I do know about education and education policy uh, in general, um, and granted, I say this is not apparent, uh, but when people... Uh, when people's kids get involved, like they stop being really rational thinkers um, and they don't necessarily do the things that are always right because that is um, an emotional connection that you can't really overcome. I think, too, we can't underestimate the power of giving your child access to those networks, right? Mm -hmm. That's what the Ivy League promises. I think they give you good education, but they also give you access to the kids of other elite parents. And um, that is priceless. So I think that's what these parents were going for. All right, well, that's going to do it for us here at the Big Tent. You can follow us at Big Tent Radio on Facebook, and you can try to follow us on Twitter. Uh, Maybe we will show back up there this summer. (laughs) We'll see. Um, We'll see you next Thursday at at 4 o'clock for Radiothon, so make sure to tune in.